Listener production. Hey, welcome to The Briefing. Tom Tilly with you. It's Friday, September 24. I'm joined by Antoinette Latouf. And Antoinette, we're talking about divorce during COVID on the show today. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one. And, you know, I hope my husband isn't listening. <laughs> um, because I do recall, you know, in the first lockdown, when you peel away your family time, your friends' time, and all the things that make you happy, you strip your life back bare and it's you and your partner. Yeah. And I think you face some ugly truths. So at one point I was like, oh, gosh, I've said till death do us part. Um, the good news is things are much, you know, much better now. We found our groove. We've worked on a bunch of things. But it got me wondering, how are other relationships faring when we are spending so much time together? Well, yeah, over the last 20 years, the divorce rate's actually been going down in Australia. So today we're asking, will the pandemic flip the trend? He one day came home and just, said he didn't feel the same way and pretty much walked out on myself and my daughter after six years. Yeah, pretty tough story there. We'll also speak to someone who actually works in the field of helping people separate in a positive way and get a sense of the broader trend of what's been happening. First, here are the big headlines of the day. The federal government says Australia is on track to reopen borders by Christmas. Yeah, Tourism Minister Dan Tien uh, announced the opening of international borders will happen when the country reaches that 80% double vaccination target. And that's that magic number outlined in the national plan. And Tourism Accommodation Australia New South Wales CEO Michael Johnson says the industry is gearing up to welcome back tourists. A lot of discussion around Singapore and the Pacific Islands, but I think also as we see vaccination rates go up, that uh, the likelihood of UK and uh, the United States, Korea and, and, and Japan are all very much on the, uh, on the horizon. Yeah, it sounds good in theory, but uh, a lot of the airlines don't have any flights going to and from Australia, so it could take a while for the flights to actually catch up. Another problem here is the state border. So while you've got the federal government, Dan T and Scott Morrison, talking up the reopening of international borders, um, yesterday you had Anastasia Palaszczuk saying she won't be opening the border with New South Wales even once we hit the 80% double vax target. If you look at the, the national plan, the 80% actually takes you backwards. So I don't want that for Queensland. So we're going to see probably difference between Western Australia and Queensland because at the moment we have freedoms. I'm asking Queenslanders to get vaccinated to protect our freedoms. That's what we want. Well, that's what she wants, but I would very much like to be able to see my sister who lives in Brisbane. And I think Anastasia yeah. Palaszczuk has a real opportunity to upstage Santa this Christmas um, <laughs> and by giving people what they want. Um, so in theory, it sounds good, Tom, but we don't know how many flights there are internationally. Yeah. We don't know how much it'll cost and we don't know if we can see our friends and relatives just over the, over the border in Australia. Yeah, there is some positive news around COVID today that uh, Australia as a, a whole will hit the 50% double dose um, milestone for people aged 16 plus. So the ACT, New South Wales and Tassie are, are leading the way on the vaccination targets there at 58%, 55 and 53 respectively. Victoria's only at 45%, so still some catching up to do there. And I know that politicians often say, oh, we've hit this milestone, hooray, we get to these whole numbers. But in real terms, I don't know how much it means and I don't know how excited the regular punter is uh, because they're still unable to do so many things. So I don't know. 50% 50% sounds like a lovely round whole number, um, but it doesn't mean a great deal. Well, it means we're closer to 70%. So that's going to be in just a few weeks in New South Wales. So that'll be, um, you know, five or six million very happy people. Mm-hmm. Um, Victoria's, you know, several weeks behind that. 
and you've got those other states like Queensland and WA who have all their freedoms right now who are looking at a very different scenario. And so a man who was part of this week's protest in Melbourne CBD has tested positive for COVID-19. And, you know, they've been talking about or being concerned about protesters um, catching the virus and it's finally happened. He's in hospital um, and anyone who attended the protest is being urged to get tested. But I don't know, I'm a bit sceptical about those people who chose to protest and chose not to wear masks, how obedient they're going to be and actually get tested. It's always a concern when you've got a lot of people, even with um, outdoor settings, we know Delta can transmit effectively outdoors. We haven't had particularly windy days in Melbourne, so that actually means there is uh, more chance that you could have transmission between people in outdoor settings, particularly if not wearing masks. That was Catherine Bennett, who's a Melbourne-based epidemiologist. It sounded like a little, there was a little smile in your voice as you brought that story, Antoinette, <laughs> that one of them had caught COVID and... <laughs> It's being urged to get tested and probably won't probably pass it on to thousands of other people. Well, I don't know. It's just one of those things that they've been talking and warning people about. The chances are very small. Outdoor transmissions Mm. are really unlikely. But But when you're shouting, every day, every day in each other's faces. Yeah, in close proximity Mm. without a mask, it's it's likely to happen. But I think it's hilarious, the thought that they're going to go and get tested if they are being civilly disobedient in that way. Probably not happening. (laughs) Um, a little bit of good news was that the protest movement in Melbourne died down yesterday. There were still nearly 100 arrests, though. Um, they were outstanding warrants from the previous days of protests, plus people breaching COVID rules. There was some uh, much less encouraging or savoury news at two Melbourne vaccination hubs. Um, staff were abused, as Dan Andrews says here, they were reportedly spat at. Why would you abuse, why would you, as I'm told, be spitting on people who are doing that sort of work? That's uh, ugly, it's uncalled for. I'm not sure whether those people can be identified, but if they can, it'd be my expectation that Victoria Police would deal with them. Look, it is absolutely ugly and uncalled for, but I think there's a real power in, in these instances in actually hearing from frontline workers and nurses mm. rather than than just a cranky Dan Andrews, um, because I know, you know, when when my parents had COVID and um, one day I was really worried about them and I called the paramedics to come and see them and I was at the front of the house, obviously I couldn't go in, seeing these frontline health workers and, you know, the paramedic turned to me and said, how many people in the household have COVID? And I was like, everybody. And then seeing them work in and seeing them really put their safety and health on the line really got me appreciating them so much more. So I don't know, things like that. It's awful to hear, but I think we need to understand and really empathise with the people who are doing this work because right now they're nameless, faceless nurses. Yeah, they do that sometimes. They occasionally will put someone up at a press conference to try and give that human part of the story. Um, but we can always do more of it and we, as you say, hear enough from our politicians. Absolutely. Um, they hit a, their highest ever tally of COVID cases yesterday amongst all that other news in Victoria, 766 cases. So that's very concerning as well. Thankfully, no earthquakes though. So there's good news, but also bad news for the Tamil family fighting deportation and wanting to move back to Bilawila. So the news came out yesterday that Alex Hawke, the immigration minister, had granted 12-month bridging visas to the parents and the eldest daughter. So that's the good news. The bad news for the family is that the youngest daughter, Thanika, wasn't giving a bridging visa, which means she's stuck in community detention in Perth. And the family need to stay with her so they can't all go back to the Queensland country town Bilawila that they call home. Here's a reaction from a family friend, Bromwyn Dendal. The government is continuing to detain a four-year-old child in community detention when the rest of her family have been granted bridging visas. So that is a 
a, a tricky concept for anyone to understand um, and, to be honest, probably quite ridiculous. This saga has been going on for years and playing out also publicly for years. So the, the family have been living and working in Perth since June when their youngest daughter had to be medically evacuated from Christmas Island to be treated for a blood infection. Yeah, and before that, they were on Christmas Island for two years and before that, they were taken away from Biloela where they'd been living for several years. So we don't understand entirely why Alex Hawke has made that decision not to grant the mm. bridging visa to the youngest child, Danica. So hopefully we'll find out more uh, and understand why he did that. And the Minister's office said it will will not provide a statement on the granting of the new visas. So I'm not sure how much more clarity we're going to get on this. An amazing story, a very successful Australian sportswoman that I'd never heard of, Rhiannon Ifland. Um, she's a cliff diving sensation. So she's just won the Red Bull cliff dive competition again. So they're jumping at this incredible spot in Italy called Puglia um, into this beautiful Italian water from a 21-metre platform. That's amazing. She's also the youngest uh, female diver ever to win an event like this. Um, and it all goes back to her childhood, Tom, which sounds a little bit like yours, where she's been diving from the age of nine, jumping off all sorts of rocks into into rivers and bodies of water. Mm. Look, I've never jumped off a 21-metre cliff. We didn't have any that big around Mudgee. But, yeah, summertime in the country, it was all about finding the biggest thing you could jump off. So... There was the quarry out at Mudgee. There was Red Bank Dam, all these places. Um, I think the quarry had a cliff of about 12 to 13 metres, and that was pretty huge. Did you do – was it like that in Western Sydney? <laughs> no, and I'm, t- I'm terrified of depths and a terrible swimmer. My, my dog can swim better than I can. Um, so, no, that's probably not something I'm ever going to win. Yeah, awesome to hear about this Australian woman, though, hey, who's yeah. absolutely kicking ass. Never heard of her before, Rihanna Knifeland. All right, in a moment, Divorce. So maybe pets have enjoyed lockdown, but that's probably about it. No, actually, I'll add my herb garden. It's the first time it's not dry and desperate. But, you know, us humans have been stuck at home. Some of us have lost jobs. And the general uncertainty in the world is super stressful. And, of course, that hasn't been easy on relationships. Yeah, so this briefing is about divorce during covid And we're asking whether the pandemic will actually flip the divorce trend. So over the past 20 years, the divorce rate has been steadily declining. But in June last year, Google searches for divorce hit a record. Yeah. So will COVID turn around the declining divorce rate? Now, we can't actually capture the data on that yet because couples need to be separated for 12 months before filing for divorce. So the data's not in yet. But anecdotally, a lot of couples have struggled, including Laura Smith, whose marriage recently broke down. Laura, thanks for joining us. Um, What happened to you guys and what role did the pandemic play? When it hit, I guess, for us, we were quite happy. Well, I thought we were quite happy. Um, And then the pressures of him losing his job, um, me having to support him and pay for the mortgage and potentially, you know, look at losing my own job because I was on probation I think it just got to him quite a lot more than it got to me. He one day came home and just said he didn't feel the same way and pretty much walked out on myself and my daughter after six years. Mm. So it was a bit of a shock. I thought, you know, I was doing the right thing by supporting the family and supporting us going forward. But obviously he just mentally couldn't cope with 
trying to find new work and not being able to help support us. Yeah, for a lot of blokes, that stuff can really hit the self-esteem, which can then have all kinds of ongoing effects. Do you think COVID has brought out problems that were already there or created completely unique problems that you couldn't face? I think it puts pressure on what already exists. I believe there was something that he already had on the line, but he just wouldn't talk about it to me. And then being stuck at home together and trying to work around each other, I think it just made the problem a little bit worse. And had you ever considered or discussed separating or splitting up before the coronavirus no. crisis? No, and that's, I think that's what upset me the most. I actually didn't even know he was breaking up with me, I guess you could say, or wanting to leave until it was, he kind of said, I'm leaving. Mm. <laughs> I thought we were actually having a discussion around, you know, he just wasn't happy, um, which he'd never had with me before um, that day. So it was literally an overnight, I've had enough and I'm leaving. But like so many things during this time, you've got to ask yourself, why make a big decision in such Mm -hmm. a a turbulent time? Why not wait for things to get back to normal and then try and make a decision in a calmer, more positive time? I imagine that thought crossed your mind. A hundred percent. I actually said exactly that to him. And I, I just said, look, you know, this is not what I want and I'm happy to work on things. But it's like he just lost his mind and left. Do you think um, when this all dies down, he might want to come back? Are you still holding out hope or do you think it's definitely over? He actually has tried to come back already oh. <laughs> um, on a crazy twist. But to be honest with you, I, I couldn't, I don't think the relationship would be stable again because I'd always be wondering and... I think I'd have a lot of, I have a lot of animosity Mm. um, towards the way that he's done things. You know, he just left us and that's just not okay with me. I just can't go back there again. I would have just appreciated some communication and it's something that everybody talks about all the time. It's communication. Just, you know, if he'd spoken to me about how he's feeling, even if it was just time out for himself, you know, men aren't very good traditionally at talking about their feelings. I think, um, whereas women, we tend to say how we feel a little bit more in most situations, just talk to each other and you know, give it a chance. I just think the rash, quick decisions, emotional decisions, just, you know, they ruin lives. I'm going to weigh in here. This maybe goes a bit too far, but <laughs> you, you were saying that he made a rash decision in a weird time, which is the pandemic, and now you're not accepting him back. Are you doing the same thing? Are you making a rash decision in a weird time? I appreciate that and I can understand why you would say that. I think I I sat down and I thought about it. I was pretty angry when he came back, but I, I did sit down and have a think. And it's, you know, if that's how you're going to behave when the situation gets really tough and it puts a lot of pressure on our family, how can I trust that you're not going to do that, even when it's not a pandemic, in another really tough situation? Yeah, that's a really strong point because life is about how you deal with crises at the end of the day and it exactly. is the ultimate test for people. Yeah, for, better, for yeah. better or worse. Mm. So that was Laura Smith. And to get a broader picture and some advice for couples who are thinking about calling it quits, we've got the CEO of The Separation Guide and they help counsel people through all that the messy parts of the divorce. Jack Whelan, thanks for joining us. What have you been observing during the pandemic? We've seen about a 90% increase in uh, request for legal advice, mm. um, an 81% increase in people seeking 
psychological support, a 48% increase in requests for financial advice, a 42% increase in people seeking marriage counselling. Uh, and then in regards to that very darker side of the, the human experience, uh, a 78% increase in people seeking access to violence prevention services. So there's evidence that this is a moment of pause for a lot of people. They're doing a lot of research about what happens if they are minded to separate. And there's plainly a lot of people out there as well doing it very tough, uh, such that they are seeking uh, support when it comes to accessing people who can help them through a violent situation. So what do you think is really at the core of those dynamics? What do you think lockdowns have done to our relationships? I think if there have been existing problems in relationships, the lockdown has exacerbated those things. Wherever there are communication challenges, uh, financial pressures and just incompatibilities, that's when relationships are under pressure. And in a lockdown, with such close proximity to each other, perhaps someone not working as much, communication is going to be more and more strained. Uh, financial pressures will be even more difficult. And so I just think the standard drivers in relationship breakdowns really are exacerbated in the conditions of a, of a lockdown and a pandemic. And I guess you know, Googling and researching how to separate is one thing, but actually separating is another. And, and you touched on some of that you know, financial instability. Do you think that coupled with a general lack of mobility um, means people may be just sticking it out, even if it's just for the time being? I think that's right. I suspect that a lot of people are using this period to do some research and the evidence does support a lot of people are thinking about this, many more than in a non-lockdown, non-pandemic period. But if you are minded to make that big life decision, whether to stay or whether to go or even whether to have a discussion with your partner about it, once you actually decide to execute that decision, how does one actually move house in a, in a pandemic? How does one... Mm moving in a lockdown. So there are some natural barriers. Uh, and then, of course, for many people, it's almost impossible to even finance it. And that in particular is one of the challenges for, for women who are perhaps in a, in a violent relationship, just trying to leave safely, having the money to be able to do so. It's interesting that you raise, you know, financial ability to move or to leave a relationship. A friend of mine who specialises in family law says her workload is decreased on the divorce and asset separation front, largely because people can't afford to consider an alternative option. Our experience is different than that in respect of numbers of mm. people who are reaching out for assistance. But in a financial sense, take, for example, the effect of increasing in property prices. So if increasing in, uh, in the value of one's home, if as a result of a settlement, one person is trying to buy another person out of the home. Well, they have to be able to afford to do that. Mm. And in the context of a house being worth a hell of a lot more, now that can be very, very difficult. And indeed, if two people decide to sell a home and then ultimately re-enter the property market, how does one buy a home with an increase in value when there's only one wage now and not two? There are plenty of good reasons for trying to stick it out and, and stick together, um, as long as the relationship is such that it can be mended because there are financial barriers to separating and divorcing, no doubt about it. Yeah, we have to wonder whether people think about it in these lowest moments and they do the ultimate doom scroll, which is <laughs> searching a divorce, and then they come out of it and go, oh, well, that was just a dark period and we're going to be able to work this out. I, I guess you're speaking to the people who are, who are taking it one step further and actually getting more information and seeking out a service 
like yours, how do you predict things are going to play out on that broader statistical level? Do you think this time we've been through will reverse the trend in divorces, which had been going down for the last two decades? I think we'll see an increase in people who are who have made a life decision to separate. And just on those numbers alone, there's double the number of people who are seeking legal advice in relation to separation than there are people seeking counselling. Now, that's just one particular data point, but it does suggest that a lot of people have used this moment of pause to you know, make the ultimate life decision. I suppose the point that I would make is that if you are under this sort of pressure, make sure that you do get well advised and make sure that you do make the right decision with the right information because separating is one of those subjects that we don't really talk much about. Mm. And a lot of people, when they're going through it for the first time, they're very vulnerable Mm -hmm. uh, and it can be a very, very difficult time. So what's your advice or some practical tips for someone listening to this who's been thinking of separating and doesn't know what to do next? The great sadness in this area is that a difficult time can be made even worse. And people who do it well, they focus on designing a good agreement that gets them where they need to get to, gets their partner where they need to get to, and is in the best interest of the kids. If you focus on being right, are determined to be right, and determined to fight in the way that many people are cheerlead into a courtroom, uh, this can be uh, an even more difficult time than it currently is. That was Jack Whelan, CEO of The Separation Guide. And yeah, I guess a, a lot of um, tough stuff to work through there, Antoinette. But mm. it's also been for a lot of couples a really positive time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, obviously for you. You're yeah. in your lovely little baby bubble. Yeah, the birthing suites at hospitals are fairly booked up. Mm-hmm. And I think for some couples, it drowned out a lot of the external noise in their relationships and they could focus on on the dynamic between them. Absolutely. And you don't have to deal with those pesky in-laws that sometimes, <laughs> that sometimes get in the way. Hey, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Um, don't forget um, to hit the Briefing Friday quiz on Instagram. It's a lot of fun and it's way easier than the Good Weekend quiz, which is good because that one makes me feel stupid mm-hmm. if you see that in The Age or the Sydney Morning Herald. <laughs> In your city. And have a crack. You know, you may get some right. You may, you know, we won't judge you. Well, maybe I'll judge you a little bit. Judge Um, yourself. Yeah, sure. Do that. All right. Look forward to that. AJ Clementine with Jamila Rizvi on the weekend briefing. Hope you have a wonderful weekend. Thank you so much for listening to the briefing. If you've enjoyed it, um, tell your friends about it. um, Post something on Instagram. Spread the love. uh, Review us on the podcast app. And we'll catch you later. Listener.